We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. back my friends it's thursday it's the five o'clock hour it is constitution thursday here on afternoons live a time where we set aside to look at the constitution the actual words that are written on the piece of paper why they were written that way the thought processes that went into them what they meant what they mean what they've come to be interpreted as meaning and how they affect your life even Today we call it Constitution Thursday. We have reached Article One, Section Eight of the United States Constitution, the defined powers of Congress. It's me, Dave, along with John. You'd like to join us this afternoon? The text machine is open five six five Dave. You can also email us Dave Diamond Show at clearchannel.com or join the interactive webcast and chat room at kfiv thirteen sixty dot com. Um, it's working, but. I have lost the actual chat part of my page cracking in there. I can't see it. There, you're in there. So hi, everybody. Beyond that, I'm I'm blind in the chat room. If you've missed any part of this, you can always go back to the uh, to our website, kfiv1360.com. We've got all the podcasts are available for you there. Constitution Thursday, Volume 2. It's the second time we've gone through all the stuff, so download those right there. Or the classic episodes are there as well. A low quick. Cornicio, Cornicio, stand up, tell those who oppose liberty, don't tread on me. Guess I should have let him do it again. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) So, I don't know if you read this story or not the other day on our website. Um, Why do we do all this? Well, part of the reason we do all this is because knowledge is power. And I've, I've often felt that well, I've often said on this show, uh, it, I thought I knew the Constitution. When I sat down in here January 1st, 2010, I you to said, Dave, do you feel comfortable with the Constitution? I just said, sure, I know the Constitution. I do solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, blah, 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 blah. And what most surprises me is what I didn't know. Even as I just read it, as, as I've just read the document, oh, wait a sec, has popped into my head on more than one occasion. And then as you delve deeper into it, um, I am currently, as a part of this process, I am actually currently, John, reading the, the, uh, the, the records of the convention, the actual debate records that they kept, uh, that Max Farron put together some years later. And I'll tell you the thing that has really surprised me in that, even, even now four years into this study, is we, on the conservative side, particularly states' rights, kind of people. We're 10th Amendment people. Hell, you got you got websites out there that are dedicated to the 10th Amendment. 10th Amendment people, 10th Amendment. But um, I think anybody that's actually read the framers' comments during the, during the uh, debates would be surprised to find that they were not as enthusiastic about state sovereignty as the 10th Amendment led them on to believe. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't understand state sovereignty than it's presented to us today. It's just something to keep in mind and consideration as we go through all this. And obviously, when we get to the 10th Amendment, uh, 
approximately four years from now at this rate. We'll uh, we'll get into that again. We're going to have to double up on these just to make progress, aren't we? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it seems like it. No. That's why I was saying, like, if, you know, if you get, like, a string of, you know, crummy ones or whatever. Parts that are just suck. Yeah, let's, yeah, we'll just gloss over I don't over like those. that part of the Constitution. That's my problem with theology is people just go, well, I don't like that part. I'm just going to skip Well, that. but, I mean, you know, there's some, some of it is going to foster discussion and some of it isn't. Right. You know? I don't know. I do know that. And I'm discovering that even the people who write about the Constitution do the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... The book that I'm reading right now is, uh, let's see, actual pages of writing is uh, a little over five, 480 pages, 477 pages, I guess. Uh-huh. And even he does that. I mean, he skips over parts. He skipped completely over, John, completely over Section 7, right. which it just blows me. How can you skip Section 7? I'm just... Maybe he's never heard the, uh, the Oh, song. he's heard it. Okay. He's heard. So we get to Section 8. But there, as I go back to this, there's a story out of New Jersey about the woman who was peacefully protesting at a, at a tax dispute and was arrested for basically reading the Constitution at the tax dispute at the... So let's see. Uh, they uh, And I don't have time to get into the whole story. It's on our website if you, uh, if you go to KFIV1360.com. But um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of problems with the story. And, and it's clear to me that... The people that were upset about what she was doing have never read the Constitution. Because if they had, they would have had a completely different outlook on things. It's not to say that her be, and we don't know because all we got is her side of the story at this point. It's not to say her, to just absolutely excuse her behavior. I'm pretty sure she didn't do what they've accused her of doing. But it's clear that not everybody in that conversation had the same level of knowledge that she did when it came to the Constitution. And the idea that reading the Constitution at a tax protest is somehow or another an insightful act should right there set off alarm bells for us. Right. It, it should Why be going, would what? that be the case? That's, yeah, that's exactly what it's not supposed to be. So we come to Article 1, Section 8. As we've come along this thing, I think we're all on board with the idea that limited government means... Limited and defined powers. We have to say to the government, okay, these are the power. Hitherto shalt thou come and no further. Right? Don't go, don't go beyond that. Right. And the framers felt the same way as they, as they outlined how to write a bill. We talked about this in Section 7 and the fact that how a bill became the law, very detailed, right down to what days counted in the calendar, no Sundays, so forth and so on, how many days it could be. <laughs> They were they were specific because they were afraid that once this thing got ratified, somebody might get into the White House, the Congress, the Senate, the judiciary, and say, well, you know, I know what it says, but is that what it really means? Right. So they tried to be as specific as possible. When it came to what can Congress do, they thought to themselves, well, we really have to be... We have to make sure right. there's just no question... So they started Section 1, Article 1, Section 8, and they thought, well, okay, revenue bills have to begin in the House. We talked about that last week. We learned quickly how they got around that. Yes. Revenue bill has to start in the House. So how does the Senate pass a bill that starts revenue? Pass a bill that is not a revenue bill, not a revenue but bill. contains right. revenue building within it. Oh, see? And, and we all went... Yeah. But... Shenanigans. See, we say that, but I wonder... I wonder today, with the 
If maybe they thought of this or something? If they had thought of that. But keep in mind, when they wrote the Constitution, senators were state reps. They were not popularly elected. Now, neither were they when that bill was passed, but shortly thereafter they will. The movement was already well underway to get that in place. And I wonder, had the framers set up a system where the senators were popularly elected, if they would have put that rec- that limitation on there? In other words, since the Senate is equally, quote-unquote, elected by the people, why have that limitation anymore? They're still just as answerable to the people now as the House was once upon a time. Does it make sense then to not be as strict about that now as we might have once been? That's maybe the thought processes that went through the judges. You don't know. Section one starts with the or section eight starts with the Congress shall have the power to tax, the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, and to pay debts and to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Seems pretty. Right. And yet, <laughs> but oh, what happened? Oh, what a tangled web we have web woven. Web. Webbed. Web. What a tangled web we have webbed. Web. Woven. Web woven. Yeah, that right there. It's Afternoons Live, quarter after 565. Dave, 565-3283 is the text machine. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Afternoons Live, KFIB, KWSX, everywhere, VI, Heart Radio. It is a Constitution Thursday episode of The Big Show. 565 Dave is the text machine. You want to join us? Dave Diamond Show at clearchannel.com is the email. I don't have time to get to this, but uh, the city of Modesto just issued a press release about an arrest made this morning. Oh, yeah. It is on our KFIV fan page on Facebook. Two arrested for child endangerment. Uh, after they were found squatting with a three-year-old child inside a home. And the story is just horrible. But it is there if you with pictures, full-color pictures. So. You can check that out on our uh, Facebook page. Just go to KFIV1360.com. It's linked up there. Back in the, uh, in the era of colonialism in America, there was a king. In England, and there were these colonies, and the king would send over a royal governor, and the royal governor would uh, sounds familiar. represent the king in the colonies. And the colonies were generally, for the most part, uh, able to handle things on their own. So if the colony of, say, Rhode Island decided that they needed to raise money for, I don't know, soccer stadium, they could tax themselves, build a soccer stadium, and did they play soccer back then? I don't know. Sure. They at least played basketball. All right. The Providence team needed a you know, whatever they needed. So they, whatever public, they could handle it themselves. Now, the, the royal governor, because he was the king's representative, had the right to veto whatever the colony may or may not have decided to do. And furthermore, let's say the governor didn't veto it. The governor thought, well, maybe it's a good idea. The bill, the law still had to be sent over to parliament where parliament would look at it and go, yay or nay. And Parliament could set it aside if they thought it was a bad idea. And if they thought it was an okay idea and sent it on its way, John, it still yet had to go to the King's Privy Council. You ever see English people that have the word letters PC after their name? Privy Council. These are people who advise the King. They're, they're considered the King's inner circle, if you will. What does MP stand for? Minister of Parliament. Ah. So you can okay. be an MP, comma, PC. 
Really? You can. You can be a GCB, a Grand Knight Commander Bath, Minister of Parliament, Privy Council. But you don't have to have any or all of those. Okay. That's See, in England, you got all these initials after your names. That that's important. The more initials you have after your name, the better. <laughs> the better you are. The okay. more uh, the more umpty dumpty you 10-4. are. By the way, interesting constitutional conundrum here. Completely aside from this, if the Pope had been a United States citizen, mm-hmm. let's say Cardinal Mahoney, whatever you may think of him, was elected Pope, does he have to give up his U.S. citizen to become Pope? Citizenship to become Pope? I don't want an answer. Just think about it and text me or email me uh, down line. It's just a constitutional conundrum. Well, why would he? Because he's now the head of state of a foreign nation. Ah. Or is he? Well. Dun, dun, ding, don't get me distracted on that. I just It just popped into my head. And, you got me distracted on that. You can't just do that. So the, uh, the problem, of course, came about when... Uh, the states, as we've talked about before, the state, the, the colonies as they were, uh, began to get a little, what's the word I'm looking for here, John? Snitty with the kings. I was going to say snitty. Uh, turning over their laws, not giving his assent to the, in any case, the Privy Council could set him aside, even if Parliament didn't. And the king could. The king still had to give his approval, his assent to the laws before they could actually go into effect. And if the king decided not to give his assent, he was essentially giving them a pocket veto. I'll just hang on to this one until they decide that, uh, yay or nay, we're going to do it that way. If you were to happen to read the Declaration of Independence, you'll find that that's one of their complaints about the merry old king of England is that he has failed to give assent. And that essentially paralyzes our local government. We can't do anything. This is a very cumbersome version, if you will, of, of the early versions of federalism, the idea of shared power between the states and a centralized government. In the 1760s, this was barely functional in the English Empire. And in the 17, mid-1760s, it really became extraordinarily problematic for the English Empire, the, the English, uh, Great Britain and the Empire, because Parliament started getting... Uh, Parliament, really, remember all those initials after their names? Remember, to be in Parliament, you had to have money, and you were a person of influence, and all these people with no initials after their names and no influence and no money were trying to tell you, a minister of Parliament or a lord, what you thought they ought to be doing. How dare they? Impudent is actually the word they used. How impudent of the common people to question Parliament. And, of course, we've talked about last week uh, the, the Stamp Act. Actually, I believe that was this week we talked about the Stamp Act, where Parliament said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll teach those colonies. Here, you'll pay, a, you'll pay a fee on all your papers. And the colonies said, ah, no, we won't. That was in 1765. But the uppitiness, if you will, of the colonies began to annoy Parliament. And so they passed what was called the Declaratory Act of 1766. It accompanied the repeal of the Stamp Act. Parliament said, okay, well, you don't want to pay the Stamp Act. We won't, we won't make you pay it, but we're going to pass another law. And that law is essentially going to say that um, Parliament's authority was the same in America as it is in Britain. Only Parliament can pass laws. You cannot. And oh, by the way, 
If we say the sky is green, then guess what? The sky is green, and there's nothing you can do about it. Neener, neener, neener. That's not actually in there, but you get the idea. That's the gist, yeah. The gist of the whole thing was that Parliament was uh, unassailable and unarguable and hath and of right ought to have full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and the people of America in all cases whatsoever, Parliament declared. As you can see, that uh, that had kind of a <laughs> interesting that when they go to go ask somebody whether or not Parliament uh, is in charge of everything, they ask Parliament, and surprisingly enough, Parliament says yes. Yes, Parliament we're in charge. Is in charge of everything, right. except for whatever the king decides right. that, that he wants to do. And keep in mind, this is before the Great Reform of eighteen thirty-two, so you've got some so no Earl Grey tea at this point, as we learned earlier in the week. Funny right. how all this stuff kind of flows together, isn't it? Um, the upshot of this was that it essentially destroyed what little version of federalism shared power, if you will, between the two that had existed up to that point in the English Empire. The upshot of this was that the Americans began thinking in political theological terms, political theory. This was really kind of the birth of American political thought. Okay, what's different, if you will, about we over here in the new world and the way we view things? Versus all these other old countries. The sweeping theory, as it's been described, that the Americans came up with was very simply this. Uh, the provincial assemblies and parliament were completely separate, sharing a common king. In other words, you're, you're parliament for over there, we're parliament for over here, and our laws will go to the king and he'll sign off them, and your laws will go to the king and sign off them, and we won't write laws about you, and you won't write laws about us, and that's it. Right. And we're perfectly happy with that system here in America. Parliament, of course. Until the king starts playing favorites. Well, yeah. Parliament, of course, not impressed. Right. They, uh, they but, objected. But then who will we be in charge of? Strenuously object. Only the rest of the empire. That's how it works. I object. Overruled. I object strenuously. Overruled again. Overruled strenuously. And lo and behold... Uh, Things began to degenerate from there, and of course we went through all these other stamp acts and uh, T-acts and T-taxes and everything else, all of which was the purpose of which was very simple on behalf of Parliament, and that was to impose taxation on the colonies. Because when you tax something, you control it. Likewise, the country, the, the, the Parliament was, in, was trying to essentially generate revenue, and by doing so, control things with internal regulations from 4,000 miles away with, uh, well, John, I know it was surprising, but they didn't have the interwebs back then. Mm. They, didn't have, they didn't even have telephones yeah. or telegraphs. So really, best case scenario, if, if, they, if Parliament decided today to enforce a new regulation, it would be nigh on to two months before we found out about it. Every right. heard of let alone a hint that it was going to have, there was no smokes, there was nothing. And so... This system, as you know, rapidly declined, and, and in many ways, you can trace the American Revolution, the idea of self-government, because that's really what the American Revolution is. We don't need the king. We can do it ourselves. We were willing to do it ourselves with the king's assent, but for some reason, and who knows what that reason was, whatever it was, King George's illness, and, and for those of you who don't know, King George is a sympathetic character in history in some ways because he was very ill. He had a mental-slash-physiological illness that caused him to go wackadoodle every now and then. 
The Madness of King George. The Madness of King George, starring Nigel Hawthorne. is a fantastic movie if you've never seen it. But he, he had periods when he was completely lucid and perfectly fine, and you'll find in those moments that he's not quite as hard line as he seems other times. Other times he seems very, no, Parliament's issued the Declaratory Act, I signed it, and therefore that's the law of the land. And right. then there are other times when he's just outright, nuke him. If he'd have had him, he'd have used them. And you have this dynamic of history, and you can almost look at this, and there were people, of course, in Parliament who were watching this go on and go, well, wait a minute. Didn't we do the same thing? Didn't we say, hey, we can rule ourselves, we'll keep you as king, but you'll give your assent or whatever to our laws? Didn't we do exactly the same thing? And they were shouted down in Parliament and so forth and so on. And so it really came down to, if you had to trace the single sole issue of why there is a United States of America today, you could say there's a new world because of religion. But there is an America because of taxation without representation. And so when the Constitutional Convention sat down, they said, well, we're not going to make that mistake again. We're going to make sure, and that's why they started with Congress. They started with how Congress would be laid out, who would be in Congress, who could be in Congress, how many had to be in Congress. And then they got into what can that Congress do? The very first thing of which was they had the power to impose and collect taxes. So by now, if you're reading through the Constitution in 1787, you're thinking to yourself, well, we're going to have the central government. It's going to be made up this way. It's going to be these people. It's going to be this thing. Oh, and they are going to be charged with taxes. But because I elected them and all the revenue starts in the House and I voted for those people, I should be a whole lot better off with this than I was with Parliament sending over the Stamp Act or whatever act signed off on by the currently have, you know, the people's best interest in mind being that they live in a country across an ocean. And they clearly didn't have that in mind. They clearly just wanted our money and, by the way, pay it in our money, not yours. So (laughs) you can see where this began to go off the rails very quickly. And so the theory here was, the American system of federalism was, the states, the government, the federal government share the power, clearly defined, clearly outlined as to who could do what. And the federalists argued that since the people would elect the House, the House would decide what the revenue bills would be, Clearly, taxes would never be a problem here in the United States, especially since the only taxes we would have would be, you know, excise taxes, import taxes, not uh, income taxes or property taxes, right? We'll leave that to the state. If the state decides that they want to tax your property for a little bit of their money, that's your problem. You go handle that in Virginia or Vermont or New Hampshire or wherever. But the federal government ain't going to do that, they said once upon a time. So how did we get to the point where the federal government said to South Dakota, thou shalt make thy drinking age 21? And what does that have to do with taxation, you might be screaming? Well, where does the federal government get its money? And what does it do with that money? Questions we shall answer in just a moment. It's Afternoons Live, half past the hour, 565. Dave is the text machine. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Afternoons live, KFIV, KWSX, everywhere, iHeartRadio. Constitution Thursday. We're looking at Article 1, Section 8, a little bit of the history behind it. Before we start breaking it down, 
bigger way. So, John, I, I, I forgot to read this during with the discussion of the Declaratory Act ah. of 1766. We call it the Declaratory Act. That's the short title. That's the, you know, like Obamacare is actually the Affordable Care Act of 2010, blah, right. blah, blah, right? The actual title of the Declaratory Act is an act for the better securing the dependency of His Majesty's dominions in America upon the Crown and Parliament of Great Britain. Act. Yes. Much better. The purpose of this act depend upon us, not get out of line. See where the background of all this kind of comes from as, as really this idea that we're not able to, to control ourselves. And this is why this discussion earlier, and I know we were somewhat lighthearted about the discussion about whether or not bars can stay open until 4 o'clock or not. But in so many ways, John, it's the same argument all over again. Right. Do we really need Sacramento? 68 miles away to decide how late our bars or businesses stay open. Now, maybe you could make a rational argument that their job is to protect, you know, this public safety and they've determined, they've made a determination that public safety is endangered and therefore they need to interfere and then get inside of that. That would be a federalist type argument, a federalism type argument. Is it the job of the federal, the, the main central of the republican government to do that to make our decisions for us and yeah in our best interest do what's best for us and so congress looks at this this little clause here hey look at this we have the power to lay and collect taxes duties imposts and excises to pay debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the united states Boy, is that a phrase that comes uh, where does that where have you heard that phrase before oh yeah the, oh, the uh, preamble preamble that's in there huh uh and we put this sole condition upon that. All duties, imposts, and excises, those are forms of taxes, shall be uniform throughout the United States. So if Congress does decide to tax something, it has to be the same for everyone. It has to be the same in Arizona as it is in Connecticut. Can't, can't differentiate between the two. And so we came to this moment back in 1984 when Congress said to the states, Thou shalt make thy drinking age 21. They didn't pass a law that said that. They didn't pass a law that says the drinking age. They didn't pass an amendment to the Constitution saying, but like we did for voting, right? Because we, we, voting, 18, you know, not, we, we didn't do that. We passed a law that says, if your drinking age is not 21... Make it 21. We didn't say that. We passed a law that says if we, if your drinking age is not 21, you don't get no federal highway funds, neener, neener, neener. Really? We did. So we didn't pass a law saying the drinking age had to be 21. We just said you don't have to make your drinking age 21. But, but if, if you, you don't... Do, isn't this kind of the same situation where, like, so... Uh, in in Nevada, gambling is legal, but but they legalize it at the cost of some sort of federal. Could very aid, well right? be. I I believe that's the case, and and we've talked about doing it in California or whatever. Like if if California were to legalize marijuana in the state or whatever, there are things that we'd have to give up from the federal government because we're not towing the line. Right. Our mostly our right to be secure in our persons and properties as they're kicking the doors, looking for you dirty pot smokers, because the state ain't doing it. Right. All right, so the point is that at least some states, and in this particular case, the, the great state of South Dakota, and if you've ever been there, it's a beautiful place. I've been there many, many times. 
don't really have any desire to go back. I've seen all of the beauty that South Dakota has to offer. I'm sorry. It's just, You're done with it. My parents, for some reason, are obsessed with South Dakota. So you've been a bunch of times. Ugh. Okay. We've gone out of our way on vacations Ten to go more. through South Dakota because they really like it. And, and really, how many times can you see Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills compared right. to the Rockies? I mean, come on. It's not the same. So the state of South Dakota said, no. 1987, they said, this is not fair. They looked at this and said, wait a sec. How can Congress, because it says right there, sure, they can late. And where did Congress get this money that they were putting out for the federal highway funds? They got it from taxes that they placed upon the purchase of gasoline. Right. The federal gas tax. Which we paid for. Well, including South Dakotans paid for. Right. And since they were collecting the money in a rather uneven manner, because obviously there are more people in California than there are in South Dakota. And they weren't necessarily dividing up the money in an even way. In other words, if California paid 40% of the tax, we should get 40% of the money. It's not how they were dividing it up. They were dividing it up on the basis of need as judged by Congress, i.e. the general welfare of the country. This 21 restriction, John, became a a sticking point because as it turns out, and I know this will shock you, 19-year-olds in South Dakota really like to drink their 3.2% beer. And they were very upset about this. And in, in a fascinating civics lesson, they let their legislators know that they didn't really care if they had federal highway money or not. Don't take our beer because we like it. And oh, by the way, we drink, we drive on state roads too, not just federal roads. And of course, the federal government said, well, you didn't make your, you didn't make your law 21. So guess what? We're taking your money. And South Dakota, in its own consideration, suffered some form of harm that they felt had not been uniformly applied by Congress as they are required to do under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 and 2 of the Constitution. And so they sued. And that seems about right, though, because it's like they're still paying into this fund that they're no longer getting any money out of, right? It seems like that should be the, uh, I mean, this should be a no-brainer. Right. Check. I mean, I, you got on your robes, I've got on my robes, and we both look at this and go, well, Tenth Amendment. They're right. Tenth Amendment. Twenty-first Amendment, by the way, the repeal of prohibition clearly makes it, it makes it very clear that guess who's responsible for passing laws about alcohol consumption in states? Well, that would be the states. The states. And as if article, as if the Tenth Amendment wasn't enough, the Twenty First Amendment makes that abundantly clear. And in fact, the justices said that. Yeah, you're right. It says that. And so they pondered the matter. They pondered and pondered and pondered and pondered, and they came to a seven to two decision. Now that's kind of surprising in some ways because you'd kind of expect this one to be nine zip, wouldn't you? Hope. I mean, the fact that it's seven to two, though, kind of means, you know, it seemed fairly obvious to them. But let me guess, they came down not in the way that uh, you and I think that they should have. Wouldn't be the first time, would it, John? Uh, we'll tell you how coming up after this break. It's Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX, Constitution Thursday. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX, home of the delicious and wonderful Shamrock Shake. 
A traditional Irish treat that dates back to the 1600s. At least. Get that shipment of ivy and put it on the wall. So, John, if I, if I emphasize nothing else today on this episode of Constitution Thursday, I want to emphasize to you taxation without representation is the root cause of the American Revolution. And it is something to be despised by all Americans, even unto this day. It is something that we do not like. Sometimes we don't always recognize it when we say Most of the time it's fairly It was our representation that led to a lot of things. So the justices, as they... Uh, and representation, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean in Congress. I mean, it means in the sense of, of, of the right way that it's been set up here. The Constitution says that the laws have to be equally, the taxes have to be equally applied, and that they can't just arbitrarily set stuff everywhere then and, and not be fair about all of this. At least that's what it appears to say as, as I read it, and I generally read it in the daylight where the sun is strong and the fluorescent lights are good, and it's there. It's in black and white. Check. But the Supreme Court puzzled until, as Pat just said, their puzzlers were sore. Well done. And they came to this conclusion in a 7-2 decision, John. Their thinking caps shrunk three sizes that day. They decided that the removal of tax money from South Dakota was, in fact, a penalty. You can be penalized. That's really great. They, uh, they noted that the state's action needed to meet five conditions. The spending must promote the general welfare. The road. The condition must be unambiguous. The condition should relate, quote, to the federal interest in particular national projects or programs, unquote. The condition imposed upon the states must, itse- must not itself be unconstitutional, and the condition must not be coercive. Well, how is that not coercive? Well, I mean, as you go through that, I mean, the condition imposed on the state must not be unconstitutional. It's not unconstitutional to say to 21-year-olds you can't drink. Clearly, if it was... They wouldn't have that law. The condition must not be coercive, however. Kind of uh, Judge uh, Justice Rehnquist noted that the first three restrictions were uncontested. That left the fourth one. South Dakota claimed that the right to regulate the legal drinking age was reserved to the individual states under the 10th and the 21st Amendments. Court considered whether the federal government's attempt to influence the state's determination of the drinking age was, in fact, coercive. <laughs> if we give you, if you draw it up, we'll give you money. Right. That's what, that's what I was thinking which uh, earlier Supreme Court decisions had said was an unconstitutional use of federal power. You can't, you can't coerce people. You can't promise people money if they'll do what you want to do. So we've got... That's called prostitution. <laughs> or, br- or bribery. Or bribery, least. one of the two. So we've got precedent. So what's the problem, Ted? The problem is, if South Dakota's allowed to do what they want to do, John, how will that... Be an act for the better securing the dependency of our state's dominions in America upon Congress and the power of America, the King of America, to kind of shorten it. How will that, uh, how will that play in Peoria of Washington, D.C., if, if states start giving us the finger and saying, well, we don't want your money. We're going to drink what we want. Oh, and you still have to give us the money because Constitution says you have to divide it up, you know, reasonably well. <sighs> 
The decisions, uh, previous decisions held that that was an unusual, un- unacceptable level of pressure on the state. Court held that the amount of funding withheld was insufficient. Insufficient. We're not taking enough money away from you to be coercion. So what they're saying is, oh, well, it's a minor penalty. It's not enough for you to really complain about it. It's a drop what? in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. Why are you even? Why are you even wasting our time with this? You know, few millions of dollars that that you think you want because you don't want to raise your drinking age. There were a couple of dissent, uh, dissents. Uh, uh, Justice O'Connor and Brennan each filed dissents. O'Connor agreed that Congress may attach conditions that the Twenty First Amendment gives the states authority. Uh, the attached condition on the states, however, she wrote, must be reasonably related to the expenditure of funds. She disagreed with the court's findings, saying that withholding the high, federal highway funds was reasonably related to de- deterring drunk driving and driving by minors and young adults. She said that the condition was both over- and under-inclusive. It prevented teenagers from drinking when they were not driving on federally funded highways. And, oh, by the way, when they were not drinking while driving. She found it to be coarse. She held that the relationship between the condition and spending was too attenuated. Establishment of a minimum drinking age of 21 is not sufficiently rated, related to interstate highway construction to justify so conditioning funds appropriated for that purpose. She sounds pretty reasonable to me, but she was defeated 7-2, to two, and so the uh, Supreme Court said, nope. If you want your highway funds, you have to lower your drinking age to 21. And we as a country went... It's on TV tonight. Whatever. I mean, do you do you understand what just happened here? Yeah. When you understand the history of how we got to this point, how can you look at that as anything other than yet another declaratory act from our Congress now saying you will do what we tell you to do or else? And if we don't want to give you no money for it, then it seems to fly in the face of what it says in the pages of the Constitution, which is... Uh, they should be uniform throughout the United States. Well, the other really great thing is that if your lawmakers are not doing, you know, the right thing, I mean, the power still rests with the people to get rid of those lawmakers and bring well, in some that will make laws that just the people going, agree with. Which but is going to bring me, do that. Which is going to bring me to my final conclusion here, John, and I've got to rush through this. Let's say for the sake of argument that Congress had passed this law and that the people of the United States in 1996... The entire United States got upset with this law and said, that's a stupid law. Let us replace Congress. Let us have sweeping uh, elections that get all of those people out of there and put new people in who disagree with that law. They do not support that law. They don't get to vote on that law because it's already passed. But they disagree with it, and they make it very clear that they disagree with that law. Do you think the court looks at that and goes, well, clearly the people don't agree with it. Clearly the people of the United States don't want the sovereign people don't want this. Should that influence our decision? I don't think, yeah, that wouldn't influence the court, I don't think. Should it? Probably. Should it be obvious to the court that the people don't want this? That's not the people's interpretation of what it says, yeah. And yet I submit to you that in 2010, the very same thing happened. 2008, Congress comes in. They pass a highly unpopular law, which by their own admission, they haven't read. A new Congress is swept in that clearly doesn't support that law. The law goes to the Supreme Court. And the only reason that Obamacare stands today is because 
the Supreme Court said, oh, it's a tax and Congress can tax. So now the Supreme Court is the king? Sure looks that way, doesn't it? Back in 60. So, before I put the wrap on this, Nicole, thank you. It's really good. Mine's gone. I'd forgotten how good those things really are. Yeah, right. Probably a good thing that I've forgotten how good. You know what I think is cool about them is it's clearly like vanilla ice cream with like the mint swirled into it. So it's like vanilla mint. No taxation without representation, my friends. That's what we said once said once upon a time. It's what we beat our plowshares into swords for. It's what we shot at redcoats for. Lobster backs. Look at America today and the conservative justice is the one who said, no, Congress has the power to tax you. Even that it's clear that the people don't want this. Even when it's clear that the people swept Congress clean because they didn't want that. I don't know how we get this back on the right track. I I don't know. I mean, other than putting people in office that are going to appoint judge. Maybe maybe we get Congress to actually read the law before they pass it uh, and hold them accountable for not doing it. But even when we do hold them accountable, it seems like it goes off the rail anyway. we got to get it back to where it was, my friends. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life. You love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Tomorrow we're back for a Friday episode of Afternoons Live. Fun with News Plus. Top five lousy movies I watch anyway. Your list together and get it into Dave Diamond Show at Clear Channel. I'm Dave. Have a wonderful night. We'll see you tomorrow. Is next right here. AFI SX everywhere. Be the iHeart. Afternoons Live is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for Clear Channel Media and Entertainment Modesto.